0: Happy Sabbath. How's everybody doing today? Amen. Amen. Praise God for that. Well, remember that we're doing a series on what book of the Bible? Revelation. So it's been a while. It's been a few Sabbaths. We had some guest speakers. We had the 10 days of prayer and some other activities. But we're back. And so we're going to continue with our series. The title for today is Hope in the Midst of Conflict. And so there's a theme song at the beginning and a song at the end. So let's stand up and sing Shine Jesus shine. And as we sing, let's make this our prayer that we can shine for Jesus in this dark world and that others can get to know him and get prepared for his second coming. Let's praise God together. Start it over again. Ready, let's sing with all our heart. For the light of the Lord is shining, In the of
1: the is of is shining, Jesus, light of the
0: a message of hope. But in the, in first the first sermon, sermon can, can someone, someone remember what we talked about? Jesus points our only way, way now. out. And, and so, so we saw, saw that vision that John had of, of Jesus, Jesus, that he, he was walking, walking among, among
1: the seven, seven candlesticks,
0: which, which represent... The seven the churches, the and this makes all the churches, and so Jesus, Jesus is with us. What a beautiful message to hope the book of Revelation. So we see Jesus walking, walking through the, the candlesticks, sticks. you know, he's with his church, but then he has the seven stars in his hand, which are the messengers of the seven churches. So anyone that preaches the gospel, the pastors, and they people that are Jesus, where are you? In his hands. that is a message to the whole, definitely. So, we were sharing with you on the first topic, that beautiful message of hope. So, today we're going to start with the organization of the book of Revelation, because in order to understand the book of Revelation, we know we need to know how it was written, how it is structured. Okay? So, we're going to do that now, so I want to take notes, so let's go ahead and see if we can get this slide to little bit.
1: Okay, hey, we, we might want, want to start, start over
0: there. <laughs> okay, okay, so there it is, the Book of it's Revelation. So, so, I want you guys to you imagine it, in the Book of Revelation, revelation that, that you have, have two, two big balls. balls. Okay, okay so, so let's just see if we can get this going. No, it's not, not getting, getting it's sick, I guess. I, I, guess can can open open I, don't I don't know, let's see what we can do. here. Maybe you so guys can just help me. I'll just show my right <laughs> next revelation. Listen, we get this going. Alright, so the first section, the, right. so <laughs> the, the first section is, the first the section is the called the historical section. section. So, so it's, really about history. History. It's, it's about history, history. history. It's, it's about the of the, the
1: past.
0: Okay, so this is we get this going. Alright, so the historic section. It's, it's quite a few chapters there, so it's chapters one to fourteen. So you might want to
1: write that down. Chapters one to fourteen. So we have the eschatological section.
0: And then we have chapters fifteen to twenty-two This the section. That's without any other. So let's see what we can do here in this section. What is it about? What is the historic section about? It's about the development of
1: the great controversy. So all the way from chapter
0: one. All the way to chapter 14, is talking about how the great controversy, since the Christian era began, how was that developed? How did that go? So as we're talking about the development of the great controversy, but in the theological section, by the way, don't let that word scare you into scotological is a big word. So scotological just means the study of my events. So it's, it's the, the theological realm. Of, of studying study final events, all right. So, so don't don't get scared, we're scared with that word. It's cathological.
1: So here we have the consummation of the great controversy. So while the first chapters, of 1, one fourteen, will tell, we'll tell us how that great controversy was developed, the last, last chapters of the book,
0: from chapter fifteen to twenty two, will talk about how that great controversy is going to end. Okay. So uh, so we see these two big volumes. One volume is the historic section. The other volume is the catalogical section.
1: But then in those two volumes, there's four chapters. So let's go to the. now. So we have these two
0: volumes. And we have the historic section and the mythological section. We have the introduction, which we saw last time that I created. And then we have basically four chapters. We have the seven churches. We have the seven seals. We have the seven trumpets. And then we have a section that covers the seven
1: scenes
0: of the great controversy. So that's the volume one. Okay? So let's go to Volume 2. So we have the scatological section, the seven last place. we have the fall of Babylon, we have the millennium, we have the New Jerusalem, and then of course we have the conclusion. So then like we had an introduction, now we have the conclusion. So I want you guys to, to know exactly how this is structured. So we have...
1: In the seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven
0: scenes of the great controversy, we have these lines of promises that go parallel. So I want you guys to imagine that these four chapters, the seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven scenes of the great controversy, they run parallel. In other words, you will see a lot of things repeated in one line of prophecy, in the next line of prophecy, but with a very important detail. Like, the seven churches will say certain things about these seven periods of history that covers Christianity, but then in the seven seals, we'll see a lot more details. We'll see a lot more details. In the seven trumpets, we'll see more details that have to do more with geography, with political movements, and all that. So, they run parallel, but each one will give more detail and more facts about those periods of time. Okay, then we have the, the scotological section. we have the seven class and the we know that, that those are in pair. Pair. those are in so, pair. Pair. so when we so study the, the seven last class, that, that will take us to, to know how that will fall, fall. Okay? okay, so, so I want you guys to notice how those are paired up, and then we have sections 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4, also paired up, we have the millennium,
1: and then Orbitus,
0: to the so final, final chapter, which is the New Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So, we so we have two pairs. pairs. We, we have the first pair, the seven last class of the the, Fulme, Fulme, the second pair, the millennium, and the New Jerusalem. And then, of course, we have yeah, the conclusion to the book of Revelation. So, uh, you know, yeah. uh, if you look at the comments and the message of Revelation, it's good to look at the structure so we can understand what it's all about. So, the main thing. Main thing. Very important, you guys know what the main theme of the book of Revelation so the is. The main theme is the great, great, great conflict, conflict or the, the great, great, great controversy, controversy where Jesus said, is overcome. Okay, okay so write that right down said, because that's that's, that's, that's the, the main theme of the whole book of Revelation. Book of Revelation. The, the, the great, great conflict, the, or the controversy great controversy where Jesus is victorious. Jesus is victorious amen. Right. So Revelation begins with the messages to the seven churches and ends with God's people in the New Jerusalem. What a beautiful story. So, so uh, of, of course, course, if you, you guys go see, out there in, in Christianity, you'll see a lot, a lot of books written about my relationship, relationship. But,
1: but most, most of the books, the books that I have read that are not really, really,
0: really in, in tune with what the real message is, Uh they bring pretty really off. off. I can, I can, I can tell you for a, for a fact. fact that a and lot of those books are a lot of times fixed in such a way to say what I want to say and not what it really is supposed to say. Okay. okay, and then and there's, there's some, some authors out there, some
1: some, some real serious, serious authors out, that out there. They're not either, but that. they say that the Book of Revelation is too hard to understand.
0: Some authors say, say that it's all past, past history, history, and that, that, that there's no, no relevance for it. Some, some say that it's all way in the future, history. so why are you studying it? But, but those, those that do, do say that it's for our time. They They say say it's too hard to understand, but it's too hard hard to understand because because you have to know that most of the symbols that are in the book of Revelation are interpreted interpreted by the Bible itself. You don't have to go anywhere to find the interpretation. interpretation. It's right there in the Bible, okay? And besides, we have to understand that it's the best organized book in the Bible, okay? Is the, it's best the best organized, organized book in, in the Bible. Bible. So, so today we're going to basically go through, through the message the to the seven churches, churches, which is found in Revelation chapter two and three. And so through. you so might you want to, to have your Bibles open Bible to Revelation chapter, chapter two and three. And three. So,
1: so here, here we, we have these have letters, letters, letters that, that were written there in the Island, by the Apostle John, sent to the seven churches. Okay, these messages were sent to the seven churches. And look let's look what chapter two verse one says.
0: So in the chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And then if you go to verse 8, it says, And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna, write. And then we go to verse 12, And the angel of the church of Pergamos wrote these things. And so we have these angels, which we understood by the first sermon that I gave at the beginning of January. These were the elders or the leaders of these churches that were going to read out loud These letters. Okay? So with that being said, we can continue. So we have the seven churches. It's addressed to the seven churches, which we also studied some of the symbolic
1: meaning of the numbers in the Bible.
0: And we figured out last time that number seven means what? Complete or whole.
1: Awesome, right? So this means that this message
0: or these messages to the seven churches are not only for those seven churches. Is it's given to the all the Christian, Christian, Christian churches, not only those mentioned in,
1: in these chapters.
0: Okay? Now, now where were these, were these churches, churches okay? located originally? Because these churches didn't exist. Did. So, let's so let's go ahead and put the map up, right. up here for you guys. So these are the letters to the seven churches. And if you notice, I'll try to use the pointer and I'll see if it works. Okay, it's not, not working. But we can see here in the first map that's on your, on your left, you can see all these churches. Or all these cities. So let's start with Ephesus, which is highlighted. And then you can go up a little bit and you see Smyrna, which today is the city of Izmir. Okay, so then we we'll see up a little higher, we see Then we we'll see towards the bottom there, we see Tainteria, Sargaz, Lodella, and Laodicea. So we have the seven churches there. Some of the cities that you see there are cities that are modern cities. Like if you go up there, you up there see Istanbul. Okay, right. so, so some of these things are, are more, more, more Christian-era. Christ and if you and look, look at the map on the right, right
1: we can we see, see that all these churches, churches are in one single country that, country that exists today: today.
0: Turkey. Turkey! Okay, which I'm going to take the trip track, and go to all these places. awesome, right? Okay, so we see Highline in their emphasis, and all the rest of the church right? They're in the system, they're a little bit towards the right side of the system, so we're uh, above uh, Ephesus. And, and so, so we see Syria there, there see so we see rocks. this just helpful to locate where these churches were originally. Okay, so this is just helpful. Uh, so but we then we go, go to the churches that are mentioned in the Bible. So the, so the first so one, one that is mentioned is the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was very famous for several things. And so if you notice here, we have this temple. This, this was one, one of, of the, the greatest great buildings that existed in those times. It was one of the marvels of the world. Imagine, this is a huge, huge temple to the goddess Diana. They were very proud of their temple to the goddess Diana. And so here you see the tremendous columns. These columns were about. 4 meters feet feet in, in diameter, 12, 12 feet over in diameter, which is a costume. It's an amazing structure, an amazing, amazing, amazing building. building. Of, of course, course, if you travel you there today, to this today, was thinking of my friend, I was at that pastor's house the other day that was on our street. He took this picture, this picture, and some other pictures in other So he went there and he said, Pastor, this is the only thing
1: that the temple. Okay, okay. this is it. This is the ruins of that temple in honor to that god. Okay, of course, it was very famous for tonight.
0: It's a two story library, it was made of almost a solid, solid marble, marble. Yeah, it, it was, was, it was it an amazing structure. structure. You 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 know, know, this is the ruins of the library, uh, there, there was also some, uh, some uh, uh, sculptures of famous white people's
1: philosophers
0: and all that type of stuff. So this is the ruins library. Then we have the ruins of the theater of the city of the city. So and the buy it when they put have out and be meeting 80,000 people could sit that in this was theater. This <laughs> is a huge theater. So this, is, this is all that's left of that. Esmeralda. Yeah, this is the modern city of um, Izmir. So if you go to, the, to your Google, you look up to Izmir. This is what it looks like. This is the modern city. And then, I don't know if you can look at Right there in the middle on the bottom of it, that big white building is, you can see some of the ruins of the city that existed during John's time. So let's take a look at it. So this is something that, that you'll see there if you visit the cities, like a little some type of a tunnel, maybe was a road that was that was covered. It's part, so part of the ruins the
1: that ruins was that left was dead, uh, from, from the old, old cities. This uh, mean, right.
0: morning. Yeah. Then we uh, have uh, Pergamum. Uh, this is uh, high up uh, in the in the, in the uh, lofty, uh, lofty mountains lofty in that area, areas. and so and this so is the ruins. ruins. This is this all that's left, a Pergamum. It's a modern city, but it still has some of the ruins right there close to downtown. So there's some of the ruins of the old city. Sardis, also, this is all that's left. And this is Philadelphia. So imagine these columns. This must have been a huge building of some type. This is all that's left of the old city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Laodicea, we can see it from the distance there, and then we can, can take a closer look. There's a few uh, tombs there and, and some uh, ruins. So what is the message to the seven churches all about? So we have to really, really understand that there's three applications, three applications to the messages to the seven churches. So let's, let's see this triple application of these messages first of all we have a local application so these letters were written they were delivered to these churches and they had to do with situations that those churches were really living and going through at that moment and time right close to the end of the first century so these are local applications to each of the specific churches that existed at that time but then we also have a prophetic application which is to teach us about the seven periods of history of Christianity. So it'll go through all Christianity from from the time that, that Jesus died and resurrected all the way to the second coming. So there's prophetic periods involved here. Then we have, which is very important, a personal application, a spiritual application, a practical application, how these messages can affect you as a Christian today. Because at the end of the day, if the book of Revelation is just about information, it's not going to do you any good. So as you study the book of Revelation, you have to say, God, what are you telling me through these messages? What do you want from me? What can you do for me? So this is very important. So we have the local application, the prophetic application, and also a personal application. So let's go to the first church. So let's go to uh, chapter 2 of Revelation. It says there, in verse 2, it says in verse 1, unto the angel of the, the church of Ephesus, write. And so it says there, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and thou cannot, canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say that they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So we had the first period of time. We're talking about the prophetic period now. So that goes from the year 31. All the way to the year 100 and the bible says that jesus tells this church during this period of time i know your what your works your labor your patience so even though the, the christianity was not a huge movement then but man these people were on fire they were going everywhere preaching the gospel they had gone to rome they had preached the gospel even there in the courts of uh, of Rome, of the empire, so they 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 were going everywhere preaching the gospel, and that's why it says, "I know your works, your labor, and your patience." So we have this beautiful message. Of course, in each of the churches, or or most of them, there is also some rebukes because we're not perfect, you know. So there's things that we go through, and that God wants us to change. But but here we have this this tremendous uh, message to the church, the apostolic church. Like I said, there were not a lot of Christians then. But they were on fire, okay? Let's go to the next church. So we have Smyrna. You know what happened in the year 100? The Roman Empire started a persecution that was simply terrible. Imagine, they, they would treat Christians like if they were animals. They would actually put them in, 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 this, in this arena and have them fight lions, And be devoured by the lions. So you've heard about the Roman Colosseum and and how they would have to go and hide in the catacombs and in the mountains. and, And they would be fleeing for their lives. So Christianity was under a very aggressive persecution during this period of time. So that is the church, we would call it, the church that suffered persecution so those are the years there because exactly in the year 3013, that persecution stopped we're not going to go into too much details about that but the emperor became a christian because of political reasons not because he loved jesus you know he got baptized and everything and so he made a law no more persecuting the christians okay so here we have it uh the bible says in verse 9 and 10 i know your tribulation and poverty do not fear any of those things which you will suffer what a what a beautiful message to to give comfort to the christians during that era so this is the the church that suffered then we have pergamum the church that made alliance with the world wow and the bible says there in verse 13 you will you dwell where satan's throne is i mean those are harsh words to the christian church okay so what what happened there? So persecution stopped. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but when we're in a time of peace, that's the most dangerous time to be a Christian. Because then that's when we get all lax. That's when we get, you know, too comfortable. And we start to compromise. So when we're under persecution, it's like you have to make decisions. And you have to know whose side you're on. But in this in this period of time, from the year 313 all the way to 538, We find the church that made alliance with the world. They settled for the world. They adapted to practices like the worship of images, worshiping relics, pagan practices flooded into the theology of of the church. And so we had all these crazy things going on. So there was no more persecution, but there was alliance with the world. Let's go to the next church. Next church, Tyatira. The next church we would call it, see how what we would call it the church of the middle age or the middle ages or the dark ages. Okay, so that would cover all the way. This is the longest period of time of the seven churches, so it's all the way from the year 538 all the way to 1516. Wow! So, those of you that study history, you more or less go, you know, where I'm going when I talk about 1516. Okay, so we'll talk about that in the next church. But here we have. The verse uh, 20 in chapter 2 says, You allow that woman Jezebel to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So what what are we talking about when we talk about the church of Thyatira, of that prophetic period of time? So th- this is a time that is also called, if you study history, it's called obscurantism, which is the same thing as talking about dark ages. This is a time when Christianity was totally perverted it stopped being christianity and it became catholicism okay the catholic church kept control of the consciences of the people the sciences religion politics that's why the year 538 is so important because that's when the emperor gave political power to the church so now they would have dominion over civil issues. So here, here we have a very, a very dark time because imagine the church now is in control of the conscience of the people, of their thoughts, of the science, the politics. Imagine if a scientist came out with a really good truth. He discovered something. Well, if the Catholic Church did not agree, then you were a heretic. <laughs> you, you were a liar. And you could get in big trouble. Actually, you could even lose your life. Like Galileo Galilei, you know, he's the one that during his, his research and study, he said, hey, the earth rotates around the sun. And the Catholic Church called him into a council and said, you better not be teaching that. Because the earth does not move. The earth is fixed in space. And he said, no, the earth rotates around the sun and also rotates around its own axis. So it rotates. Well, they literally had him back off. And so this is the final words when he ended up that, you know, he ended that conversation with the council there with the Catholic Church. He says, okay, okay, okay. The earth doesn't move. And then as he walked out, he said, but it moves. (laughs) Okay. So here we have the church that's controlling all aspects of people's lives. Incredible, but true. So let's go to the, the next church. The next church is the Church of Sardis, 1517 to 1755. So this is the Church of the Reform. This is the Church, the Protestant Reformation Movement, where a lot of people are now going back to the Bible. A lot of the Catholic priests that became some of the greatest reformers found out that you are not saved by grace plus works. You are saved only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's why it says here in in chapter 3, verse 3, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. And so here we have a church that is going back to the Bible. And we have the Reformation movement, which is so important. So those are the years, 1517 to 1755. Then the Church of Philadelphia. This is a very interesting period of, of the prophetic Uh, uh, section of the seven churches so we have uh, 1755 to 1844 so this is the church of the second coming actually there in verse 8 of chapter 3 it says i set before you an open door so here we have a church that starts not only going back to biblical truths but they are excited because they truly believe that jesus is coming and so we have we have preachers in europe we have preachers in Africa. We have preachers in South America. We have preachers in North America, all over the world. We have this movement, this revival, that Jesus is coming, and you must get ready. So this is a church of the second coming, and this here we, 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 we can follow with the Millwright movement here, right? So Miller, you know, and, 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 and all those that became later on the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you know, they were really excited because they were part of this prophetic period. Okay? the church of the second coming. So we can remember this period by that, the the church of the second coming. Then we have the last church, Laodicea. This is today's actual church from 1844 all the way through the end of times till Jesus coming. And uh, this church has some problems. It says, you are not cold or hot. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing wow so this is this is this is serious stuff here this is serious stuff so here we have the current church a confident church can you see that on those words it's a confident church a church that is confident in its wealth it's confident in its knowledge it's confident in its organizational structure and to this church God invites it to repent because they're full of pride. They think they don't need Jesus in their lives. They got it all figured out. And that's a very true picture of Christianity today. So here we have the last church, and so we're talking about 1844 all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So here we have gone through briefly the the, the seven churches, just a, a quick review of the Christian history. But now I want to focus. Remember, I said there were three applications? There was the local application, there was the prophetic application, then the personal. So I'm going to the personal now because I want this to impact your life and, 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 and so God can do something for you today. So we're going to pay special attention. We're going to focus on the promises made to the seven churches, which were important then. They were important during these seven prophetic periods of time, these promises. But they're very important to you and I now, especially with all the things that we're facing. So let's see what these promises are about. Let's see what they teach us. So we have four promises to the four first churches, which are promises of restoration. Then the last three promises are promises of salvation. So let's see if we can go through these and, and, and learn something. So let's go to the church of Ephesus. So let's go to our Bibles. And it says unto to the church of Ephesus, let's go to uh, verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear. How many of you have an ear? Okay. all right. <laughs> so it says here, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So I want you to notice that one of the things that our first fathers lost when they sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, was access to the tree of life. Actually, they had to leave the Garden of Eden. God put a cherubim right there in the entrance with a, a sword of flaming fire so that they could not have access to the tree of life and keep living eternally when the penalty of sin is death. And so we, we have this amazing promise. Remember that what we lost when sin came, God is going to restore it at the end. So he says you're going to be able to eat of the tree of life, which Revelation said is, is for our well-being, for our health. is to keep us in a totally healthy body. So, you know, we're going to have access to the tree of life. That will be restored, giving 12 fruit every month of the year, different fruits. I mean, that, that is just so amazing. So we're going to have access to the tree of life. So that's in, in, in Revelation 2-7. We're going to be able to eat of the tree of life. So that's the first promise of restoration. The second promise to the church of Smyrna. Okay, let, let's go there to the church of Smyrna. And right there at, at the end of, the, of that section... It says in verse 11, he that hath an ear, who has an ear? Are you listening? Okay. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. So, so I want you to listen to this because this is, this is really important. So Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they didn't die immediately. Okay? Because they had that, that, that vital force in them but they started dying right away as soon as they sinned but only christ can deliver us from the second death and the right to eternal life can be restored so let me tell you a little about about the second death because the first death is the death that we see every day someone died of covid or in a car accident or or you know a stillbirth or whatever and so we have death but imagine the second death this is the death that we should not want to be part of because this is the death where after the millennium, all the wicked will be resurrected to face judgment. And they will see like in a panoramic screen their whole life and all the opportunities they had to give their life to Jesus, and they didn't. And they will acknowledge that God has been a just God, and they will kneel down before him, and they will accept that his judgment is true. And then they will be destroyed, and that's why it's called the second death. They already died once, and now they're going to die forever. There's no such thing as eternal life in hell. You know, a lot of churches teach that. An eternal hellfire. No. The Bible teaches it's either eternal life or eternal death. That's it. No option. There's no in between. My brother used to tell me when he was younger, my, my little brother, which we have, we've been talking a lot lately. He's going through some stuff. And so he would say to me, I, I only want to live to be around maybe 30 years old, see my girl grow up, and I'm done. And I said, bro, you ain't got that choice. Because if you die, you're going to resurrect, either in the first resurrection <laughs> or the second resurrection. And we would talk about these things, and he was like, I, I think I got to think things in a different manner. Second death, serious stuff. So here we have the promise, the promise that we will be delivered from the second death and the right to eternal life will be restored. What a beautiful promise. Let's go to the next promise. So we have the next promise. This is to the the church of Pergamum in verse 17, another promise of restoration. So let's go to the Bible, verse 17. So there in verse 17 it says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So here we have another promise. Let's just meditate on this part. Eat of the hidden manna. I don't know if you already caught this, but in the first church, we're going to eat of the tree of life. Now we're going to eat of the hidden manna. So if you like to eat. It's a good place to be in heaven. (laughs) Okay? So here we're going to eat of the hidden manna. So what is the hidden manna? So let's go through this really quick here. So we have the hidden manna. Remember, Adam was told that he could eat of everything in the garden. There was a perfect provision for all of his needs. But when he sinned, things changed. The Bible says, now with the sweat of your face, you're going to eat. And no, it says with the sweat of your face. It doesn't say with the sweat of another person's face like a lot of people do today. Because we have a lot of people that are exploited and and abused, taken advantage of. There's modern slavery even here in the United States. So, So we have to understand what this manna is about. So Adam and Eve had plenty to eat. And Jesus is saying, once... Everything is restored. All of your needs will be supplied. You won't have need of anything. That's the hidden manner, the promise that all of our needs are going to be made once everything has been restored. That's an amazing promise. Now, let's go to the next church, which is uh, the fourth promise of restoration. And it's the Church of Tyoteria. And it says in verse 26 that we will give us authority over the nations. Let's read it. Verse 26. Verse 26. So it says here in verse 26, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. So so remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that authority. They lost that authority, right? Okay? Remember that when they sinned, that authority that God had given, when he created them, he said, You will be lords over this earth. He, he said, You will have lordship. You will be the one in charge of this earth. But when they sinned, they lost that. And now God is saying, you know what? Satan will no more be the prince of this world. Because, you know, he, he stole that authority that God had given to Adam and Eve, and he made it his own. But God is saying, no, he won't be the prince of this world anymore. Now all of you will be prince and princesses of the universe, because you're going to reign with me, right? So here we have authority over the nations. What what a beautiful promise. Now the last three, remember we said there were seven promises, but the, the first four have to do with restoration. The other three are promises of salvation. So let's go to Sardis. So we have Sardis, we have the promise of salvation. That's in, in chapter three, verse five, where it says that we'll be clothed with robes. So let's let's read it there in, in chapter three, verse five. So it says there He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. Wow, this is incredible stuff. So here we have being clothed with white robes. And you know that in the Bible, every time it speaks about that, it's talking about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Being clothed with his righteousness. Because the only way that we can be saved is by accepting the perfect life of Jesus his death on our behalf on the cross, his resurrection, and also his work in heaven in the sanctuary. So we're only saved by that robe. We cannot be forgiven just by trying to fix it on your own because you can't do that. So the Bible says that if we accept this promise, which is a symbol of Christ's righteousness, we will receive salvation. You know, how many times we we, we haven't heard someone say, oh, my heart is too black, or or, or, or my heart is too stained. It's full of sin. Well, Isaiah declares that all of our righteousness, yes, are like filthy rags, but the Bible also teaches that the righteousness of Christ can present us righteous before the Father. So he can forgive us. So this, this is basically talking about justification. So this is... The biggest step in our salvation is accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So if someone here in our church today or someone online has not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your opportunity. Justification. So we can be forgiven. We can be justified before God. So let's go to the Church of Philadelphia now. So there's another promise there. I will write on him the name of my God. So, so, so in Philadelphia, there's another promise. I will write the name of my God. In the Bible, what does the name mean? Character. Character. So, so the Jews, for example, they didn't just put any names on their children. They put names that they wanted to represent the character of that boy or that girl when they grew up. Or maybe something that happened when they were born. And then they would put a name that symbolized something that, that would carry on through their life to remember them something that happened when they were born. So we have the name Jesus, for example. Jesus means Savior. Emmanuel God with us. Jacob deceitful. <laughs> God had to change his name, right? Once he understood that that God was on his side and asked for the blessing. So God changed his name to Israel, to overcomer. So so we have the name. The name means character. Each name has a meaning. When we look at the 144,000, when I preach that topic in the series, you guys are going to be able to understand this a lot better because we're going to study each of the names of the tribes that are enlisted in the book of Revelation and find out why they're going to be in heaven. So we're going to study in more detail about those names in, in another occasion. But writing the name of God in the victor produces God's character. This is what we call sanctification. So notice that to be saved is not only being justified. It's allowing God to sanctify. That's why we keep the Sabbath. Doesn't the Bible say that? That we keep the Sabbath to be sanctified. So in the process of salvation, yes, we are forgiven totally, 100%, freely, justified by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. But once we do that, then the Holy Spirit starts a beautiful process called sanctification. Sanctification, that process where God is transforming us continually, changing us continually reproducing his character in us, transforming us to reflect his character. John wrote, Beloved, now we are sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So when Jesus comes in his second coming, when Jesus comes again, those that are alive, imagine, th- this is incredible. I mean, this just makes me, uh, just thrills me so much. Imagine when Jesus comes again, his people that are alive, when Jesus comes, will be representing his character. Wow, amazing, amazing. So here we have the process of sanctification. So it's a promise of salvation, and part of our salvation is allowing God to sanctify us on a daily basis then we have the following church the church of laodicea so there it says in verse uh, 21 chapter 3 verse 21 i will grant this is to the overcomer remember these are only promises to the overcomer i will grant to sit with me on my what on my throne so here god is promising us that we'll be co-heirs of god we will reign with god forever this is a promise of glorification so now we have Justification, sanctification, and then glorification. That's the process of salvation. Salvation is not complete until we're glorified, until we're in the, the new, earth made new, living with God forever. So here is the promise of sitting with God on his throne. So in Revelation, we find in the messages of the seven churches, a presentation of the process of total restoration. That's the message to the seven churches. But now I do want to focus just on two little details of two of these churches, the two last churches, something that's very significant. So look, go to chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, and we see that there is a door. It says there, I set before you an open door. This is true the Church of Philadelphia. Okay, this is significant. Jesus presents us with an open door. But what is this door? What is this door? This door that those that study a lot of prophecy know it will be closed probation will be closed grace will end right before the second coming so this is significant because this is the door of opportunity when it seems that everything goes wrong when it seems that there's no solution to COVID or to the political uh, strive to economic situations when we think that everything is going the wrong way we must remember Jesus has a door that's open. Sometimes we say that when God closes the door, he opens a window. But here we, we see actually a door, a literal door that is open, Revelation 4.1. You know, we, we, we have this in one of the scenes. It says, Behold, a door open in heaven. So this is the door of opportunity. By his death, brothers and sisters, Jesus opened the door to the heavenly throne. Remember in the earthly sanctuary, there was a place that no one could go in. What was that area called? The most holy place. Ah, But look at this. When Christ died, a door was opened for all to have access to the heavenly throne. Matthew 27, 50 and 51. In verse 50 it says that Jesus cried with a a loud voice. It finished. He gave his spirit. But then the next verse said that at that moment something happened. What happened in verse 51? It says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom by an invisible hand, the hand of God, announcing to the world there is an open door. You can go to the throne of grace boldly, freely. So this is a beautiful message. Now, in order to open the access door to the heavenly throne, wow, Jesus had to make a huge sacrifice. He had to become a human. He had to leave his throne in heaven. He took human nature. He was born as a helpless baby. He suffered ridicule and contempt and suffered death. Isaiah 53, verse 3 to 7. Let's go there real quick. It says here, he was despised and what? Rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid. Isn't this terrible? We hid as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are filled. Now listen to this. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's very important that you follow the thought here. As sheep gone astray, and then it says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So keep that in your mind. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He, 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 he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He not. So, so I want you to uh, take a look at this scenario. So Jesus is the shepherd. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is the shepherd? Okay, so his sheep is following him. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns around, and he sees his sheep all scattered and running in the wrong direction. Well, by law in those days, he would have to take that sheep or those sheep that had run away, that had scattered, to the slaughterhouse. So here is Jesus. He loves his sheep. But now he has to take them to the slaughterhouse because they messed up. But then Jesus says, no, 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 no. I don't want them to die. I'll die for them. And then he understands that he can't die for them because he's God. God cannot die. And so the thing is that he has to become a sheep now. He has to become a lamb. He has to become one of the flock. The shepherd cannot die for the sheep. So he had to become a sheep. He had to be turned into a sheep. So being God, he becomes a human. Then he can die for us. As a sheep, he dies for the sheep. But these ungrateful people, what did they shout? Crucify him! Crucify him and then when he was on the cross, if you are the son of God, get down from that cross. What ingratitude, ignoring that he was doing this exactly for them. The rebellious flock, the lost flock. So in order for Jesus to set and open the door of salvation, he suffered humiliation. And the greatest humiliation was God becoming a human being. He resisted the temptation to use his power against his executioners and died for us. Out of love for you and for me, the door is open. The question is, will you go through? If you're here this morning, it's because I really want to believe that you've gone through that door. So let us come boldly, says the Bible. Look at this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and grace in the time of need so yes the door is open but you know what in the last church there's another door and this is even more serious than we can imagine another door what door is it the door of your heart i mean there's a door of salvation there's a door of opportunity but there's another door that needs to be open behold i am at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and him with me. So Jesus is knocking at the door, at the door of our heart, but sometimes he finds it closed. So here we have a tremendous contrast. We have an open door in the church of Philadelphia, and now we have in the church of Laodicea a a closed door. A closed door. There's a song that says the Savior is waiting. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why? Don't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to him? Time after time he has waited before. And now he is waiting again. To see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, how he wants to come in. If you'll take one step towards the Savior... My friend, you'll find his arms open wide. Receive him, and all of your darkness will end. Within your heart, he'll abide. Time after time, he has waited before, and now he is waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, how he wants to come in. Let's pray. Dear God, There's a powerful message to the seven churches but an even more powerful message to each one of us today. Yes, you've opened the door. The door of opportunity is still open for anyone that wants to accept your salvation. But sometimes, like this artist drew Jesus knocking at a door and a little girl looking out the window through the curtains, will I open will I not open? If Jesus is not a stranger, she will open the door. Dear God, Jesus is no stranger to us. So please help us to open the door of our heart. And not only today, but every single day. We thank you, God, for the book of Revelation, a message of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, we're studying the book of Revelation. main topic is what? revelation a message of hope so let's stand up and sing that beautiful song that is our closing song for every every time i preach this series we have this hope and sing it like we believe it okay we have this hope Instructions on our way out is straight through the back door, six feet apart. Even if you go to the parking lot, keep your your healthy distance. I like to use that word instead of social distance. It's a healthy distance. Let's pray, dear God. We thank you so much for the Sabbath. Help us to keep enjoying the hours of this holy day, and this afternoon, Lord, as we support our young people with our Zoom A Y. Help us to have a great time and learn more about you. And also during our social time this evening. We want your Holy Spirit to be with us, that we can have a a great time to have recreation. We thank you, God, for everything you've done and everything you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.